Hello, Doug Sands. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited for our conversation today. Uh, you're, a, you're a hypnotherapist, a comedic stage hypnotist, a podcaster, host of the Making Meaning podcast, and uh, you specialize in hypnotherapy for weight loss. And I think that that's a very interesting topic, and there's so much we're going to get into. So yeah, thanks for coming. Absolutely. I think it's going to be a great conversation. Sure. So how about we get started? Just tell us a little bit about how you kind of got into this field. Like what motivated you to or inspired you into hypnotherapy and you know, how come you decided to sort of focus on the weight loss aspect of it? Yeah, it's kind of a, an interesting story. Um, and I don't think there are many people who start off life thinking, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to be a hypnotist when I grow up. <laughs> yeah. It was something I, I went to, I went to college university for, um, for English, for creative writing and uh, with a psychology minor. And so psychology and helping people was not really my main focus to start off with. And it was in, in the middle of college that I actually left college for a little while to kind of, you know, stereotypically find myself. I ended up doing um, some hiking out in the East Coast of, uh, of the U.S. Um, in New Hampshire. And um, I never climbed a mountain before. And so that was that was a whole new experience for me. And so after about six months of hiking, uh, I was ready to leave New Hampshire and I got onto this hike that was that I probably should not have been on. It was a really beautiful hike, but I got lost in a middle in the middle of a blizzard and uh -oh. it was oh, it was a crazy experience. Um, and I ended up bushwhacking to get down this mountain. I got terribly lost um, and it was the closest I've ever come to to dying like had I not gotten myself out of that situation, I would have frozen to death in that in that moment. Damn. And it it was a really it was a really clear watershed moment for me that I said, I, you know, I can't keep living my life the way that I've been living, trying to outrun my anxiety and trying to not feel the way I'm feeling. And so trying to find my own methods of dealing with it, I stumbled upon meditation, which as growing up as a rural kid in rural U.S., I was that was that was radical for me and yeah. meditation helped me so much that I explored it more and I was exploring the science and that's when I first learned about hypnosis and like many people I thought it was just kind of like a stage show thing but when I learned that there was an actual history of people using hypnosis to deal with anxiety and weight loss and other things and that it actually worked for many people in many of the cases I was hooked and so I started using it for my own relief and then as a passion project I started learning it and I was so interested in it and I was getting such great results just helping people casually that it's not what I do full-time wow and I mean so were you hiking alone when you did that <laughs> I was hiking alone okay um, that was that was a, a hike I definitely should have turned around just to give some perspective I got to the top of the ridge line above the tree line and I couldn't see more than 10 feet in any direction. It was like I was in the middle of a cloud and I I would see a hiker coming forward, coming towards me and it'd be kind of like they'd appear out of the mist and then I'd turn to watch them go and 10 steps later, um, they were gone. So that's, those are the conditions um, that I was in and that's kind of a, uh, that kind of illustrates how lost I, how lost I got and um, how difficult it would have been for a search party to actually find me that day. Yeah, I mean, that would have been terrifying. And also, I mean, I don't know if you have a good answer to this, but why were you hiking in the middle of winter uh, when there's <laughs> snow and blizzards and stuff? I mean, it just seems like not the greatest idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I do like to hike in the snow. Uh, the New Hampshire mountains are very beautiful that time of year. But usually I would save it for um, better weather. Mm. That day, I was actually leaving New Hampshire in like three days from then. And there was one hike, a very famous hike. Um, in New Hampshire that I wanted to do. It was called the Lafayette Ridge. And it's uh, supposedly when you can see stuff, you get 360 degree views for three miles or more. But wow. um, I, I was a little bit stubborn and pushed myself into a dangerous situation. And so, yeah, yeah. grew from it for sure. Well, listen, I mean, it wasn't all that bad, right? Like near-death experiences <laughs> tend to transform people's lives. And as a result, here you are today, you know, doing yes. what you love and following your passion so 
it's not like you made a wrong move necessarily it just must have been terrible and terrifying at the time <laughs> you know yeah it i wouldn't want to relive it but i'm very glad that it happened yeah no I, that's fascinating because i'm always interested in you know those kind of like near-death transformational experiences and i think it's really fascinating how when you come face to face with your own death in a very real sense not just in the sort of like psychologically speculative sense of like oh i'm yeah. gonna die someday or whatever it is that really does force you to like take a step back and say oh okay well <clears throat> i made it through this so it's basically you could look at it like a second chance or a mm -hmm. an opportunity to be like well i am going to die one day and how do i want to live until that day right yeah is that absolutely. Kind, is that kind of what you felt yes and um after after that hike i thought you know i was just going to go back to the status quo as things were normal and uh for about a week my anxiety was through the roof like my hands were physically shaking and that had never yeah. happened to me before and in that on, that on that actual hike, um, there were many different psychological steps that my mind went through to get to that point. Like there was there was the moment of denial, like I was, you know, I'm not really lost or I'm not that lost. And then there was panic and there was fear. And then there was, um, you know, the depression, the giving up. There was a moment after it gotten dark. And if if you've ever been in the mountains anywhere, when it's gotten dark in the middle of winter, you know how pitch black it is. Mm -hmm. Like I turn off my headlamp and I could not see anything. Like I could I could pick out a few stars through the trees overhead, but there was nothing. And so I very clearly remember this moment that I was following this stream because I was so lost. I had no idea where I was going. And I knew that there were one of two streams that crossed the highway that I had to get back to. And so if I, I figured if I followed this eventually long enough, I would find that highway. Um, I, but it was extremely hard, hard going because mm. those, those trees, they never been touched by humankind. Like they had grown together like Velcro. And so I was making about, um, I was making about a, a mile progress every hour. And, you know, I had, I don't know, it was probably seven or eight miles that I was, out there in the in the dark for anyway yeah i remember very clearly this moment i climbed up this very steep hill and i slipped down it and that happened two or three times and after the third time i just gave up and i remember putting my face in the snow turning my headlamp off and just thinking you know this is it i'm, I'm gonna freeze to death i'm you know whatever make hmm. peace with my life and it wasn't the thought it wasn't any of those stereotypical thoughts like you know, what about my future kids or what about the life I could be living? It was the random thought that I'm so lost that no one's going to find my body until spring that got me up and back on my feet. And it wasn't it wasn't that drive like, you know, I need to get out. It was actually that curiosity saying, you know, I wonder if I can get out. I wonder if I can keep pushing myself and just get out of that. And coming that close to you know that that giving up moments that was really the the turning point for me and actually saying yes i am going to die and doing what i love hiking and doing other things like skiing and um you know aerial sports that's there's an inherent risk in that and so it's definitely changed how i have approached the rest of my life as well yeah i mean that's amazing right because most people don't have that kind of experience and especially not alone where you're like well it's either i do something about this or that's the end right there was yeah. no no one pushing you no one saying you you can do it or this you just need to go this much further or there's help waiting for you you were like i have this full control right now and it's all a mental at that point it was like a mental exercise right because you weren't physically too exhausted to carry on yeah um it was more about like well am I going to just give up right now or am I going to use this and just keep going right until yeah. the very end? And I mean, it also really highlights for me that instinct for survival, right? Of mm -hmm. like, no matter what, you just keep going until you can't and anymore, right? Um, yeah. But I mean, what a, what an experience that must have been. What was the, <laughs> what was the temperature like at that time? 
it was actually fairly warm. Like, okay, the I'm sure you know the the temperature changes as you drop elevation. So up on the ridge line, it was extremely cold. Like there were icicles forming off of the off of the boulders, and I had ice like in my beard. And um, but as soon as I dropped down into the valley, it was actually fairly warm, which was actually a, a detriment for me because uh, the snow was falling, and so it melts onto my jacket. And so mm-hmm. I knew that if I didn't get out by the time that the weather really started uh, started cooling off around 11 and midnight, uh, I, I had no chance. I was going to freeze regardless. Right. And so um, it was, yeah, it was. I get anxiety whole, thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> and so how long did you spend like trying to get out? Like how long did it take you to actually reach a point where you were like, okay, I'm, I'm okay now? I got let's see, I got lost around 1 p.m. Um, and I had my giving up moments around 7.30. It got dark around 5. Um, and I probably reached a point I knew I was going to be okay at about 8.30, about an hour later. I remember very clearly I was so exhausted, both physically and mentally, that I was trudging up and down these low hills um, in this un, you know, unmanaged uh, river valley. And all of a sudden, the ground kind of flattened out. And I was like, oh, this is this is so nice. And I'm walking along. And all of a sudden, my thought is, oh, this this kind of looks like a trail. And then that was the moment my mind went, oh, this might be a trail. And so I remember running forward and getting to the edge of the trail and looking out. And that's when I saw the lights of a big rig going past. And I've never been so happy to see a truck in my entire life. Yeah. Um, What what was was that feeling like? (laughs) um elation um surprise at actually having gotten out and also the intense realization that i had i had done it that i had gotten myself out of the situation i'd caused and up to that point i'd been kind of in my life i've been kind of living reactionary living reacting to other things Mm -hmm. that was the first moment i actually trusted myself and my instincts to say you know, I'm, I've got to get myself out of this and I have the capabilities to, to get myself out of this. Yeah. Wow. And then, so what did you do from there? Did you get like hitchhike or were you just, <laughs> did you set up when camp? I, <laughs> when I, when I actually found where I was on the map, I, um, I was about three miles from my car and that was a, that was a pretty hard moment for me mentally. But, um, there, there was a, a cross country trail that was very well groomed, uh, a cross country ski trail. I was very well groomed alongside the highway um, that I was able to just kind of shut off my brain and shuffle along for those three miles. Um, oh, I was, I was exhausted, but I made it back to the car because I didn't have any camping gear with me. Mm. You know, this was just supposed to be a day hike and it already used up all my water. And so it was there were, essentially at that point, there was no option. And that, that's really what, what, what kind of helped me get through those last moments was that, um, it, there wasn't really an option. I didn't really have the choice, and so I didn't have that luxury. It was either you know I I figure it out or or I die, and so I figured it yeah. out, I guess. Yeah, and it, it's amazing what you can do when there's no more options, right? Yes, <laughs> uh, and and how <laughs> yes. far you can actually push your body, or how far it pushes itself, however you want to look at it. When you're just like, okay, well, I've just had this insane you know, near death experience and it's freezing and I'm cold and it's dark and I'm alone and, and you're like, oh, yep. and now I still have to do three more miles. And, <laughs> you yes. know, you're like, okay, well, this is this just how it is. And you just trudge on and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to do this. And I don't know, does your mind shut off at that point? Or, I mean, not shut off, shut off, but like, yeah. is it very much just a, like just one step not thinking about much or just thinking about the car or is is that the kind of you know mental state you need to be in at, at that point it kind of was i was exhausted and i knew if i if i thought about what i'd just been through and allowed myself to process that at that moment i wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't be able i wouldn't be able to handle it and so my mind really compartmentalized that that stress and that you know psychological mm-hmm. impact of that and that was what i was processing that week after when i was having those tremors that um 
yeah in that moment i really just shut off my brain and it was it was kind of like i went went to that primal part of myself just you know eating breathing moving the um the essence of a of a human body essentially yeah and so i was i was you know thinking about staying warm and stuff like that but it was solely thinking about survival in that moment right yeah there was just drive to survive right it was just that 100 percent like everything is this is what it is right nothing else matters at this (laughs) point you know global problems personal problems family (laughs) drama it's like who cares right it's just i need to survive and i got to do what i got to do and make it there and it really like makes me think about like what people are capable of right if they're Mm. able to tap into that part of themselves like regularly right um yeah go ahead yeah that's that was one of the biggest realizations for me because i realized just how much i actually could trust myself and that led me to exploring all kinds of different things i mean we mentioned meditation and hypnosis but i also did other things like sports and other excursions like um i started dreaming of going abroad and living abroad for the first time i don't know how it is for um for people over in in the UK and in the in Europe, but here in the US, a lot of people don't travel internationally, and so that was a really big step. Um, I also started um, looking into powered paragliding and doing some aerial sports, and those were things that I never would have considered before I'd actually gone and you know had this experience to see how far I could actually push myself. Wow! And so through all of your escapades and journeys and you know, uh, whatever you'd want to call them. I mean, that ultimately led you to, you know, hypnotherapy because it was it the fact that you sort of understood how powerful the mind is and that there's ways to work with it when it's, you know, um, I mean, there's a quote that you have, which I think is is brilliant that I saw on, on your site, which was that, you know, your brain isn't broken right it's working perfectly it's just running a bad program or an imperfect program Mm -hmm. something like that and i thought that that was you know really a good encapsulation of what a lot of people go through where you're stuck in these sort of thought patterns that develop into habits of living or doing or whatever it is and rarely they're they're just mental structures right it's not Mm -hmm. a reality from external it's an internal sort of existence that can change right and so hypnotherapy is one of the ways that people go about changing those things right Um, yes and so let let, you know can you take us through a little bit of the science of, of like hypnosis and hypnotherapy and how it kind of all fits together in that changing format absolutely i'd love to and talking about the power of our brains. So many of us don't realize that until we have some type of experience. For some, it's having, you know, meditating for the first time. For many of my clients, it's having that first hypnosis session and realizing that, one, our thoughts, they're not set in stone. We can choose which thoughts we want. And two, the habits that form the environment we live in, those are just programs that that our brain is running and we can change that. And I hope that most people do not have to have as... Um, as extreme a, a wake-up call as I did with that hike. But um, there are certain ways, there are definitely a easier ways to reach <laughs> yeah. that point. You realize your mind is very powerful. So looking at the science of hypnosis, um, hypnosis has a very long history of being used to help people. Um, it's at the, the longest, I should say, the oldest recorded use of hypnosis is actually in ancient Greece. That's where the name hypnos- hypnosis comes from because the ancient Greeks would build sleep temples where they would go into trances and do all funky things with like <laughs> snakes and stuff. Anyway, <laughs> it would calm their anxieties and other things like that. But they would name the, they would dedicate these temples to the god Hypnos, the god mm. of sleep, because those trances kind of look like sleep. And we'll touch on that in just a minute. Um, the science of hypnosis really starts in about the mid 1800s. Um, that's when the major medical associations started researching it and started approving it. Hypnosis has been approved by the American Medical Association, the American Psychological Association, um, and other major health organizations around the world, 
including the British Medical Association and the National Health Service as a as a way to actually use um, the power of our mind to create changes. And so about the 1950s, that's when we saw modern science really stepping up its game on researching uh, hypnosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, we Scientists have been putting people in hypnosis uh, in MRI machines to learn kind of the brain waves of hypnosis for quite some time now. And um, that's kind of where we're at right now. We know essentially what's going on with the brain and we know how we are able to access the unconscious mind. But there's still this there's still this social um, misunderstanding of what hypnosis is because there really aren't that many hypnotists out there. Um, I think it's like 17 to 18,000 hypnotists. I don't know if it's in the U.S. or in North America, but compared to like doctors and dentists, hypno- hypnosis is still, um, I don't want to say a fringe thing, but it is an up and coming thing that is really uh, very effective at creating changes for certain issues. Yeah. And you can especially see it when you, <clears throat> excuse me, when you talk to people who have been through it and I've done a, a hypnotherapy course, treat, a treatment course, mm-hmm. not, not a study course. Um, and it's it's an amazing experience, right? Because you're you're basically like accessing a different part of your mind that you didn't really know how to access before, even though you might have mm-hmm. been feeling the effects of it, right? Yes. And it is weird that it hasn't been more prominent in medical literature and things like that. And, you know, like here in Canada, like there, there are only, as you said, there's only a few around. And I guess maybe one of the reasons why it's not considered so, you know, quote unquote mainstream is because most of people's experience with it is the kind of like stage hypnosis, right? Where it, it's a performance piece and it's like used to kind of like, you know, look like it's control, right? And mm-hmm. to make people make quote unquote make people do things that you know are silly and funny and i mean those performances are great don't get me wrong i i love them and and they're wonderful and it's all good but it's like if if that's your pr campaign it's not it's not (laughs) such a good pr campaign for the the medical or the healing benefits of it right exactly um but i guess that's why you're here (laughs) is to teach to teach people about it yeah and talking about the that uh, understanding of hypnosis. There are two kinds of hypnosis uh, in the hypnosis world, at least mm. in the field. And there's therapeutic or change work hypnosis, and then there's stage show hypnosis or comedy hypnosis. And um, there are a lot of hypnotists who do this for ther- for therapeutic reasons that kind of bash stage hypnosis. But we've got to remember that therapeutic hypnosis would not have come about if we hadn't had stage hypnosis to kind of popularize it. Mm. Um, the myths around hypnosis, uh, they've, they've been here pretty much since hypnosis entered the, the field as a scientific ish, as a scientific tool. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is that Sigmund Freud, the man who first, who kind of fathered um, psycho, psychotherapy, um, he was at one point a hypnotist. He actually stopped doing hypnosis because he his his clients would wake up after his dentures would fall out. His dentures would stay in, and so he had a really hard time hypnotizing people. Anyway, um, in the early days, hypnosis and psychoanalysis had kind of a um, a rival um, a rival attitude towards each other, and so that might have been part of the initial. Um, angst over hypnosis and it's also we don't really understand you know Mm. someone goes into what looks like a a trance and um, during a stage show they they start doing the funky chicken and they look like a robot and like what is that what we don't know they didn't have the brain science to understand that at that point and so hypnosis was extremely effective at helping people work through things like anxiety and ptsd that's actually where it had some of the most, Im- some of the biggest impact in, um, in European and global world affairs. Um, after World War One, there were thousands, millions of people who had uh, some extreme traumatic uh, events in their life, and they had these symptoms of PTSD. And with psychoanalysis at that time, you couldn't put people, all those people, through six weeks of 
um, of care to get rid of that issue. You didn't have enough yeah. psychotherapists at that time. And so they used hypnosis to rapidly um, treat that PTSD. And then after you know they found this was really effective at dealing with that, they kind of put hypnosis back on the shelf. And, and then World War II happened, and they took hypnosis down again for the same reason. And then someone got the bright idea, you know, if this is so effective for dealing with this, why don't we do this more often? And so since about the 1945s, 1950s, that's when hypnosis has really been growing. And now in our modern society, um, you see hypnosis in, in so many different ways. There are apps for hypnosis. There are hypnotists in almost every major city around the world. And now a lot of hypnotists, including myself, have gone completely online so that they can help people with these specific issues um, all around the world. I just had a call this morning with a woman in India. You know, I'm based here in the U.S. And with those kind of reactions, those kind of interactions would not be possible unless we had this uh, this medium of video calls that we can use hypnosis through. Right. I mean, it, it is amazing that it can be done through video calls. I mean, it's not entirely surprising, but it does feel kind of strange, right? Because you're like, well, surely you'd want to be in the room or, you know, you need to like work with the person there. But, it, you know, if, if I'm not mistaken, it works because you're guiding people into working on themselves, right? Yes. So you don't actually need to be there because you're not interfering with the person doing their own work, you're sort of just like encouraging, promoting and providing a space for them to do their own internal reworkings, right? Is that exactly. why it kind of works across across platforms and that? Yes, I often tell clients that I am simply a guide. And this this kind of touches on that idea of, of mind control and why that's it's completely false. Um, hypnosis is a state that the client creates for themselves. Hypnosis with a hypnotist is simply a guided state, kind of like a guided meditation, except we're using um, actual tools from psychology and um, actual structures to get you to a deeper place than most meditations where you can actually make those changes. But the idea of, um, of mind control, a person, a person who does not want to go into hypnosis will not go into hypnosis no matter what I say. There's no way I can physically yeah. or you know, verbally control that in any way. Um, and so explaining that really helps to um, lower people's guards in, in a good way to allow them to actually be vulnerable enough to work through these issues. And touching on working online over Zoom, there was a myth in the, um, in the hypnosis field that it was not quite as effective to do hypnosis over Zoom and over video calls. And it then 2020 happened and people started questioning that. I had actually built this business um, a couple of years before 2020 and COVID shut everyone down, um, you know, face to face. Mm. And so by the time that most of the big names went into, you know, full time online, I had already been practicing with this with quite a bit. And what I have found and that others have found now is that oftentimes doing hypnosis over Zoom is even more effective than doing it in person. Yes, you have that face-to-face -face and nonverbal interaction that you might not get fully with Zoom, but when a person is in the comfort of their own home, they're so much more relaxed and so much more able to access those deep states. And not only that, right. especially when working with anxiety and weight loss and emotional eating as I do, um, they're in that specific environment where these triggers often happen. And so as opposed to someone coming into hypnosis office office where we do the where we do the work and then they go home and they forget about it and um, you know it might not be quite as effective. They are in that environment and those triggers are immediate and mm -hmm. they can see that change how quickly it actually happens. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Because you you would otherwise be inviting people to your office where you're trying to create this sort of you know safe space or whatever you want to call it where mm -hmm. you know people can feel that but really home is exactly where they feel the safest exactly usually speaking yeah. um but yeah and so you know so how did you get into the sort of like how did you choose what aspects you wanted to focus on or specialize in or was it just more of a natural like those are the issues that people kept coming to you with 
it was a it was a stop and start progression. I first started working with um, anxiety and I had some great results because I knew what kind of worked having experienced it with myself. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people they they don't want they don't want to admit that you know they have anxiety and um, a lot of people don't realize that a lot of people have this idea that you either have anxiety and you have to go see a doctor and get medication and you are mentally ill to use the quote um, or you are completely perfectly fine whereas instead anxiety and stress is more so a a gradient Mm -hmm. where you could be completely calm you know meditative monk state or you could be completely um ptsd um, a nervous wreck all the time it, there's a gradient in between that uh, maybe you have stress every day from the morning for the morning and evening commutes maybe you have stress talking with a certain relative um, those are all forms of i don't want to say anxiety but nerves and stress and we can use the same tools with hypnosis anyway what i found out was that i was not getting the i was not getting the amount of people that i wanted to help with when I was focusing solely on anxiety. And so I started looking at different areas that I could work with. And for me, one of the biggest issues was weight. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, I used food as my first coping mechanism when I was a kid. And when I was in high school and college, I struggled a lot with my weight. And even when I got, you know, quote unquote healthy, and I looked healthy on the outside, I still had an extremely unhealthy relationship with food. And so, that's what I started to focus on next um, after anxiety. And I, I at first just tackled weight loss in general. And everyone kind of knows hypnosis for weight loss. And so I got a lot of great traction that way. But my real passion was about working with that, with using food as a coping mechanism. And that's now that I've become more established, that's really what I've focused in and dialed in on. And what I find is really interesting that I, I kind of came back to that anxiety because oftentimes, we're using food simply as a method to cover up that anxious response. And so I am using tools from weight loss and anxiety and kind of combining it into a whole, um, a whole program for my clients. Right. And it makes sense because listen, I guess the truth is most of us aren't very good at emotional regulation, right? And we find ways to regulate the uncomfortable emotions in all sorts of ways and you know habits develop usually from childhood or whatever it is but they're not nest they work right and that's the that's the unfortunate part is that they temporarily work um it feels good to eat chocolate uh or it feels good to have a drink or a smoke or or whatever the sort of you know behavior that you're using to regulate yourself um instead of just you know knowing how to just auto regulate internally which most people don't because just you know we as a society we're not at that point where we teach people that um yes and that's because most people don't know it's not some like nefarious like oh we're trying to control people or this or that i mean at least (laughs) i I, at least i don't think so to me to me it just seems like no one really knows how to do that for some reason and so you know we just don't teach each other teach each other and yeah. so people end up finding ways to do it because being dysregulated is a you know very unpleasant state to be in. And if it's happening, yes. <laughs> if it's happening all the damn time, and there are ways for you to control it, well, to not control it, I guess a better word to be would be to just like self-medicate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then why wouldn't you keep doing it, right? Uh, Absolutely, it, it's totally and- logical. Yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of the the point behind that quote, you know, your brain is running an imperfect program or yeah, imperfect program perfectly. Yeah. Um is that the brain when it finds a solution, it tends to stick with it. The brain does not like risk because our brains developed in times, you know, in primal times when if you took a risk, if you went out looking for food in a new area and you got eaten by a tiger, that was life or death. And so when the brain finds something that can resolve that specific issue, even if it's not the best for our overall health, it's going to stick with it. And oftentimes when we're in that state, uh, we're, you know, dysregulated, we, we're grasping at anything that will help us. And so when we find food as a coping mechanism, as many of my clients often do as, you know, in childhood or in teenage years, 
that becomes something they stick with. It becomes an unconscious program that they run, you know, 10, 20, 30 years later when they logically know it it doesn't work for them, but unconsciously it's still what their brain is holding on to because it's in a fear state. And one of the one of the things about food that makes it so powerful as a as a way to not feel things as a as a coping mechanism is that MRI scans have actually shown that we know that food kind of makes us happy. It lights up our dopamine centers and everything. But the really interesting thing about food is that it actually lights up our brains the exact same way as getting a human hug. Hmm. Meaning that when, as social creatures, when we get few human contact, um, we feel part of that group. We feel safe. And if for for many people, especially during the COVID lockdown, when you are suddenly cut off from people and you don't have that human contact and your brain is suddenly craving for that, many of us often turn to food. And that's why it is such a such an impactful uh, coping mechanism that so many people struggle with. Yeah. And it's also so readily accessible and available and yes. to a large degree, understandably socially accepted, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's food, right? Uh, yeah. And I think it's also why so many people struggle with it because unlike other sort of like, you know, quote unquote bad habits, there's no sobriety from food, right? You <laughs> you, you can't abstain from eating. Well, you can, but it's not going to go well. But yeah. <laughs> it, it's very hard because you have to basically reorganize your eating habits that you might have been doing for decades, right? Yes. And yeah. instead of you know, in like a other sort of substances or whatever it is, you can sort of like stop and go through this transition, rough transition period and then readjust and whatever, but you you can just avoid it as much as you can. Whereas food, there's always food and you have to eat multiple times a day. And so that opportunity for you to overindulge or to have the wrong kinds of healthy foods or whatever it is, that doesn't go away. And so I imagine it would be a tremendously difficult thing for people to, you know, come to terms with, at least without the proper kind of support system or, a, you know, someone like you who's sort of guiding people mm-hmm. through it and teaching them the ways that they can do it, not with ease necessarily, but at least just helping themselves, right? Not just yeah. not just brute force willpowering it. <laughs> Yes, and you absolutely hit the nail on the head there. Uh, food is, when we use food as a drug to not feel things, it's the same kind of psychology as, as an addiction. And the, the really interesting thing about food as a drug is that it has one of the shortest, quote, highs of mm. any recreational drug out there. Um, food lights up our pleasure centers for only about three minutes on average. Meaning that three minutes later after you eat that piece of chocolate cake, you're back to feeling exactly as you were before. Thus, you know, you create that cycle where you have to eat again and again, essentially chasing the dragon to try to get that feeling back. And yes, food is extremely accessible now. I mean, our brains were developed in times of lack where you had to go hunt for your food or gather all day to get a full meal. And so our brains still give us the same psychological rewards of working for that meal, even though it is so much easier now in, in today's society. Yeah, because they were built for survival and maximizing chance of survival and reproduction. And the main component in that was eating in survival. Mm-hmm. It's at least one of I mean, I guess the first one is don't be attacked and killed. <laughs> yeah. That's probably more important than food, but at least equally important is food because that's how we survive, right? And so yes. there's, there's really, it's, deep man and every species consumes something to sustain its survival and so that it it's so hardwired into our brains that like the people who do you know like the i guess the performers who do like the 40 day fasts or whatever it is Mm -hmm. i mean how they do that is mind-boggling right to overcome that drive to eat is is really i mean listen it's not good for you it's not a recommendation (laughs) Um, and you know, they suffer long-term damage a lot of the time, but it really is like a heavy, deep in embedded system, right? Yes. Yeah. And food addiction is really not touched on as a, as a drug very often. And 
that's kind of the thing that I'm that I often tell people who are looking at the program. Like this is an actual this is an actual addiction and like it's it's okay to need help. This is not just like you're lacking willpower or something. This is your brain is, you know, is structured to work in this certain way and it's running that program and this is okay to to ask for help. Yeah. And man, you, and you really see it when you look at like, you know, the people who are like five, 600 pounds a plus, mm -hmm. that's when you're like, oh, I see, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. I, I see where it can go. And I mean, yeah. I feel it, it's hard to see that, you know, like I watched the show on, um, I think it's a TLC, the thousand pound sisters, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a really, it's a nice like, um, reality show about two sisters who are trying to, you know, lose weight and one's like 600 pounds and one's like 400 and they're really nice people and they interact and it's, it's a great show, but you, it does really highlight the struggle that they go through, um, like an addict would of, of just like mm -hmm. not being able to control it. Right. And you're, and you can see it because you're like, they understand, you understand as the viewer, they understand as the people that if they don't get help and sort it out, that they will die relatively soon right yes and yet it's still a tremendous struggle as it is for heroin or cocaine or mm -hmm. whatever addict or alcohol like that's where it leads to right um i mean as doctors say like i heard dr drew pinsky say this he's like who's an addiction specialist he goes addiction is a progressive disease that ends in death he's like that's how mm -hmm. it goes right and unless you can intervene and sort that out like that's where it goes and food's the same thing, right? Um, it's just, Absolutely. yeah, it's just a, a very different one in our society, but we're seeing a lot more of it, right? As obesity rates skyrocket mm -hmm. all over the world, just about first worldy kind of problems. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's a real problem. It's not a first world problem, but it just tends yeah. to happen mostly in the first world. Um, but it's interesting because in like other cultures, like I'm from South Africa and so, in many of the sort of African cultures, um, being larger is actually a good, it's a sign of opulence, right? Because you obviously have more than enough resources to, you know, put on substantial weight where most people yeah. don't. And so that, that provides an interesting dynamic to it as well, right? Yeah, yeah. I love to bring that up to clients and say, you know, this this idea that thinness is the the golden standard is is not set in stone. It changes where we're at in our society and everything. I think personally that thinness is thinness and healthiness is um, sought after in our current society because we have so much abundance that now we are actually um, looking at self discipline mm -hmm. when a person is, you know quote unquote healthy and they look thin and everything, they look great. Um, that shows that they have discipline that shows that they can control themselves around food. And it's, it's kind of, a, kind of an unfair thing because maybe that person didn't have to learn those um, negative coping mechanisms to deal with those issues in, in their childhood or whatever it is. And bringing up that point as well. Um, the hypnosis is really great at helping people when we consciously know that it's not working for us, as you mentioned, like consciously, we all know we should eat well. And consciously, we all know that um, if we are 400 pounds overweight, that is really going to impact our quality of life and our length of life. But we're still running those unconscious programs. And when the conscious and the unconscious are at odds, <laughs> the unconscious, it always wins. I mean, it's the part of you that controls your heart valves, your liver functions. It's literally running your body while you're thinking of, I don't know, um, cake or what you're yeah. going to do after after dinner tonight. Um, so the unconscious is, is extremely powerful. And so hypnosis is a really great way to get that working on your side rather than against you. Right, because we don't think about it a lot because we like to think of ourselves as like, you know, supreme beings and whatever who have control over our bodies and our minds. And it's like, yeah, but... But do you really though? Like, <laughs> I mean, sometimes you do, but you really don't have control over most things. I mean, it's even just within your own body, you don't have conscious control over much. Uh, you yeah. don't, you can't just think about changing your blood flow. You can't just 
think about your organs to not work or work they just do whether you want to or not i mean almost probably i don't know what the actual number is but you know i would i would guess like upwards of like 90 percent of bodily functioning and control is just out of your consciousness right and yes. so using your small little conscious mind to try and fight back against that is almost certainly a losing battle right and yeah. so hypnosis is a way to line those two things up right is, is that kind of what you were saying exactly in hypnosis um unlike i often compare hypnosis to someone using affirmations mm -hmm. you know i think affirmations are great but oftentimes they're not very effective because you're consciously saying i am a healthier weight and your unconscious mind is going no you're not what are you talking about like it's it's looking at the facts and it's like this this and this this is why you're not this you know whatever uh, in hypnosis we are actually getting to that theta state that theta brain frequency where we can uh, speak to the mind the unconscious mind in we're in language that it can understand you know our unconscious mind is developed from that primal mind that was pre-language it's mm -hmm. we speak to the unconscious in things like emotions and visualizations and colors and things like that um and that's essentially what it used to communicate with us before we had language. And in many cases, that's still how it communicates to us. If you've ever had like a gut feeling that something is wrong or like physical tension in your body because then you can't figure out why, that's your unconscious sending you a message in the only way it knows how. Your unconscious is constantly picking up so many different bits of information. And essentially what happens, your unconscious has picked up enough information that it now wants to send a warning signal to keep you a little bit on edge, to keep you alive in that situation. And so in hypnosis, we are essentially using that same system in reverse. We are often using things like visualizations and um, other tools to help communicate with that unconscious and essentially show it, hey, it's safe to release this. And that's why hypnosis is different from affirmations. We are... Um, not fighting the unconscious and trying to bowl it over with willpower. We are working with it kind of as partners to get it working towards your towards your goals. Right. And so in, in that process, right, like what's the sort of, you know, sort of like the step by step? Is, is it, I mean, you know, within reason, I mean, is it kind of like, okay, well, you yeah. have to see what's going on first. Is, is that the kind of first step? You're like, okay, well, what is... What is your, your unconscious telling you or what, what are its primary motivations or thoughts or feelings about you and, and your world and everything like that? And then from there, do you then work to start changing it or is it like conversational or is it more just like here's some new information to do stuff with? Yeah, it's definitely like that. So most hypnosis sessions go something like this. Um, I, we first, I first speak with my client for 10 to 15 minutes to, uh, you know, establish that trust with them and also to learn their specific goals. Because what I think, you know, healthy looks like is different from what they think healthy looks like. Mm -hmm. And so after that, when we actually begin hypnosis, we start with what we call the induction. And that's simply getting people down that brainwave state to that theta um, state uh, where they can actually make that change. And I can touch on the brainwaves in just a bit if you like. Sure. Um, the actual bulk of the session after we've gotten uh, after we've gotten someone down to that theta frequency where they are more able to communicate with their unconscious that's when we actually bring in a lot of tools from psychology and um other tools from hypnosis and visualization and things like this to communicate with the unconscious mind and as you mentioned it is often first the first half is usually about um reassuring the unconscious mind that it is safe and that you can release this imperfect program. Part of that is simply convincing the unconscious that there are other programs that work just as effectively as mm -hmm. that other program. And once that once that program is released, oftentimes I can physically see the uh, the relaxation in my clients. You know, their shoulders will slump and they'll sink back a little deeper into the chair. And sometimes they even smile because they they can just tell without really knowing what's going on, that something is different and they feel a little bit safer. And then the second half of the session is really about building in those other options. With hypnosis, we are not removing options ever. Um, sometimes people will come in and say, can you make me never drink soda again? And I say, 
physically and mentally, that's that's impossible because your mind will always remember that you can drink soda. Mm-hmm. Um, I can make it extremely light, unlikely that you dr- un, you know want to drink that soda. But hypnosis is not about removing those options, and that's really um, that really allows the unconscious mind to relax. The unconscious mind does not like to give up options. It likes to keep its its escape routes open, right. essentially. <laughs> and so uh, we're giving it some powerful options. And this is in hypnosis. It's not me saying this is how you be healthy. Oftentimes in hypnosis, I am being intentionally vague, mm-hmm. meaning that I give them certain options, and I am a little bit, um, I'm a little bit open about how they achieve these results. Because everyone's unconscious, everyone's mind is going to interpret those results differently. Right. Meaning that, you know, we all hear we all hear the same song, but we all interpret it a little differently. And we all hear the same, you know, ideas of being healthy and we interpret them a little differently for our own lives. And so after that, the last bit of the section session is installing the actual um, the programs and making sure they're up and running, you know, double checking our work to make sure that's actually going to last with them for the rest of their life. And then bringing them up out of hypnosis. There's usually like uh, three to five minutes after hypnosis where it's called the hypnotic coda, where uh, people are a little bit fuzzy after they're, you know, they're coming up out of the brainwaves. And then at the end, I ask if they've got any other questions. I give them some resources and, you know, tell them they can contact me at any time. And usually after after you know i i working with a program oftentimes i'm working you know between two and four sessions um and so i'm after that last session um oftentimes that's the last i hear of them Hmm. unless they they contact me and say hey this is you know it's been two years and everything's going perfectly i just wanted to say thank you and things like that it's very rare that um i have to have a follow-up session to um to reinforce or to to um to work with that again. And often that times that's because either they uncovered something deeper, another issue or some other traumatic event happened in their life. Right. Wow. And that's, that's amazing, right? Like two to four sessions. And what are they like 60 minutes or 90 minutes? Yes. 60. Yes. Yeah. Yep. I mean, that's a really short amount of time, um, relatively speaking to implement such huge changes. Right. And then so yes. do, do your clients like tend to report that, there was an immediate change or was it a gradual like like a gradual shifting i get some of both there's a program i do called the virtual gastric band that's one of my options um it kind of mimics the gastric band surgery except Mm. it works by increasing your full signals in a nutshell Mm. um that after the very first session most clients report that that very first night after that after that session they had their full plate of food and they got halfway through it and their mind just started, you know, it said, I, I don't want anymore. Mm-hmm. And it was, it's such an eye-opening experience for them. And oftentimes when working with hypnosis, you know, people still have a little bit of doubt. And so when they have that literal, very clear transition moment, that's when they fully invest in the program emotionally and mentally. And it's it's a really cool moment to see. Right, because it confirms in their experience, right? That they're not just thinking about how it might be in the future. This is like, oh, this really did something to me and then they can lean on that for the future right where yes every time they're like iffy or doubting or whatever they can be like well i mean there was that one time and that worked and so why wouldn't it work again and you know sort of just keep that momentum rolling right yes that's it's incredible. very clear yeah it's very yeah. clear proof for them and it really gets them excited when it happens yeah i mean that's amazing and you know kudos to you for for doing this and helping people um, I'm interested just to hear, we're sort of nearing the end, but I'd like to hear a little bit about those brain waves that you mentioned and how, yeah. what the theta wave state is. Yeah. So this is touching back on the, the science of hypnosis, you know, people, scientists putting hypnotized people in MRIs. What they discovered is, is this during our normal conversation, you know, like we're having right now, we are at what we call beta frequency. And that's where we're at when we're just conscious and we're, you know, whatever. Below that, we've got alpha frequency, and that's where we're at when we're in a, a light trance, when we are daydreaming or staring out a window, or if you're driving a car and um, you zone out and your unconscious is keeping you safe by driving that car and you're just thinking about something else. Um, below that, we've got um, theta, and that's what I mentioned before. 
Theta is that golden state of hypnosis. It's a state that hovers right above Delta, and Delta is, you know, just where you're asleep. That's why hypnosis looks like sleep, but it's not actually sleep. When in hypnosis, a person is always awake, always aware, and they remember about as much out of it as they would a normal conversation. And theta state is an extremely creative state. If you've ever experienced a state of flow where you you lost track of time because you were so um, so engaged in whatever you were doing, that's what that theta state feels like. If you've ever been falling asleep and suddenly had a genius idea you had to get up and go right down, that's because your brain was passing through that theta creative state where all these different ideas can um, collide and create new ideas. You were passing through that on your way to Delta to actually sleep. And so the interesting connection that I often mention with uh, meditation is guided meditation. Guided meditations will often get people from that beta frequency down to that alpha state, and some will actually get them all the way down to that theta frequency. So if anyone has done guided meditations listening to this and is curious about hypnosis, know that guided meditations are probably what hypnosis feels like for you. It's just going to be a very deep experience for you. Hmm. Yeah, and that makes sense, right? Because guided meditations kind of follow the same sort of protocol or script i guess mm -hmm. of like you know there's that transition period of re relaxation and you know just you know present i mean becoming present or or whatever it is and it's that full relaxation and then that's when they start doing the sort of like work quote unquote the work of like changing things or imagery or whatever it is and as you were saying earlier it's like it's less about the words and it's more about the feelings and the emotions and the imagery that you know can be accessed in in that state right and so absolutely yeah. um can you do people like function oh i guess you just said right like when people are in the flow state they're in a, a theta variant state right and mm -hmm. so how do do you have like a method that people can kind of like do that just to themselves or do you just recommend like trying some guided meditations I typically recommend first starting with guided meditations and then perhaps moving up to hypnosis. Mm. Um, there is there self hypnosis is a very real thing. Now that I've been practicing hypnosis for quite a long time, I actually do self hypnosis almost every morning just to just to clear up any issues or to work towards a goal that I'm working on. But the tricky thing with self hypnosis, with getting yourself consciously into that unconscious theta state, is that you have to be both the hypnotized person and the person doing the hypnotizing. Right. If, if you know what you're doing, you can do it. But um, to really make it easy, I encourage people to start with guided meditations and then work up to hypnosis and then um, learn kind of the basics of it and work from there. Right, because I suppose you need to know what you're doing, right? Otherwise, mm -hmm. you're just sort of floating about a bit. And um, yes. while that might be enjoyable, it's not necessarily <laughs> the same as being guided or, or walked through in a meditation or a hypnosis session. Right. Exactly. I think that guided meditation and hypnosis are extremely similar. And now that I know the basics of hypnosis, I, I often see so many different structures from hypnosis in guided meditations. And I don't know if that's done intentionally or it's just like a cross pollination. But um, with guided meditation and hypnosis, they have two very different goals. Oftentimes, guided meditation is, as you said, just kind of floating in that state, whereas hypnosis is about going in and resolving an issue and doing it very effectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic. And listen, I mean, thanks for coming on the podcast today. It's been awesome. If people want to find you or contact you, you know, I'll put links in the description, but please, you know, tell us where, where to go. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. People can find me at Anywhere Hypnosis. I named my company that because, you know, I was doing it all over the world. And so... Anywhere Hypnosis on that website, anywherehypnosis.com, I should say, you can find um, some free hypnosis resources. The most popular one for weight loss and anxiety and emotional eating is what I call the Binge Blocker Protocol. And it's a 15-minute free hypnosis audio that I give away that um, it, it just stops those emotions when you, when you feel like you're about to binge and you're like, I know that that moment you're on the edge, like I know consciously I'm, this is not good for me. If you can pull yourself back from that and listen to that audio, you might be able to prevent binges most of the time. And so that's a free resource. And if they'd like to check out um, other hypnosis resources, I've got some um, 
free hypnosis resources on my YouTube channel as well. I used to do free hypnosis Fridays and um, there were recordings of all different types of hypnosis there. Awesome. Well, thank you. Go check it out. Doug Sands, everybody. Um, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Take care. You as well.